All right, joining us this morning, as promised, is um, just a brilliant, brilliant researcher and journalist. She uh, belongs to the Manhattan Institute. She belongs to the City Journal. Her her latest piece is one of the most important pieces I've ever read. I've talked to Heather McDonald in the past about matters involving police statistics and and involving uh, shootings of unarmed blacks and some of the other uh, statistics that are out there that are completely misleading the public. This might be the most important work that I've read of hers, and I probably haven't read enough. But we are going to talk about the, the ranking and the valuation, essentially, of race and ethnicity over merit when it comes to medicine. The corruption of medicine is a terrific piece that Heather has researched and written for the City Journal. And she joins us now to give us some of the highlights and, quite frankly, the lowlights of, of what this means uh, here on AM 1420, The Answer. Heather McDonald, thank you for coming back on. How are you this morning? Great, Bob. Thank you for having me on and for that generous introduction. I greatly appreciate it. I watched you on Tucker Carlson. Uh, they only give you about a minute and a half, two minutes to talk. And I said, oh, my goodness, I've got to hear more and I've got to read more. That's when I went and I read the article twice. Uh, it is a lot of work. It is a lot of very important stuff. And I want to give you an opportunity to explain. You know, when we see diversity, inclusion and equity, I always put them in that order because that spells die, which is essentially what they are making happen to so many of these to our institutions. Uh, but diversity, inclusion and equity, Heather, in some fields is an annoyance. It's unfair. It's discriminatory. When you bring that to the medical field, where you start rating people, including admissions into medical schools, including um, uh, MCAT scoring, all of these kinds of things in the medical field, now it's not an annoyance. Now it's not just discriminatory and unfair. Now it is a threat to people's lives. When race trumps, uh, pardon that word, when race trumps uh, merit and ability uh, to heal and to diagnose and to solve and to treat, now we have a serious problem here. Can you tell me how you first became aware of what the AMA and uh, uh, the other health organizations are doing? Well, you've stated the problem perfectly, uh, Bob. This is utterly appalling that the leaders of the medical profession, the leaders of medical schools, are participating in this massive fiction, which is that the medical profession is shot through with systemic racism. And that the only reason that there are not proportional numbers of Blacks and Hispanics on medical school faculties in cancer research labs, in medical school student bodies, is somehow racism on the part of doctors and deans and admissions officers and 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 uh, heads of of cancer research laboratories, a total fiction. uh, And they are willing to allow their profession to be besmirched with a lie and to lower standards in a way that can only increase the risk to patients of medical malpractice, of not getting the medical care they, they deserve and will slow down the pace of medical progress because every every research lab in the country now is having to prove to the federal government to write these long diversity statements about how its work will help to promote diversity in STEM, as opposed to describing to the to the federal science funding agencies like the National Institute of Health or the National Science Foundation, why their research is critical to trying to find the answer to Alzheimer's disease or or breast cancer. I became aware of this uh, when doctors were reaching out to me and saying, you've got to look at what's happening in our field. 
Uh, we are wasting enormous amounts of time filling out these statements. Cancer research is being just dragged down by reams of red tape, you know, looking for phony diversity statistics. And uh, the best students are not getting into the law schools of their choice because they're the wrong uh, race and sex. And so I looked into it and I found that the American Medical Association, you know, if you want a, a barometer, Bob, of how radically American culture has changed in less than a century, just look at the AMA. In the 1950s, the AMA was the very symbol of solid conservative Midwestern values, you know, it, that and the American Bar Association. They both stood for establishment values, for merit, accomplishment. Now, if you read publications coming out of the AMA, you'd think you'd, you were reading something coming out of a Black Studies department at any university or college in the country. The AMA is calling on doctors to fight white supremacy, to, to fight heteronormativity, to take into account their own white privilege. The American Association of Medical Colleges, which sets standards for what medical students should know in order to get licensed. Uh, it's demanding that medical schools mandate courses in white privilege. Well, you know, as you know, Bob, learning is zero sum. Every minute that a medical student spends trying to learn how to regurgitate these shallow, specious racial justice bromides is a minute not spent learning how to save you when you have a near fatal heart attack and you show up in an emergency room or how to bring you back from a near fatal car crash. But our, our medical school leaders are willing to sacrifice real medical knowledge for the sake of this phony racial justice crusade. We are talking with Heather McDonald in getting an education on the corruption of medicine, a terrific piece that she wrote for the City Journal. And, you know, I can't help but wonder, and maybe this is kind of chicken and egg, as to which one drove the other. But for the last few years, certainly since George Floyd in 2020, but I guess going all the way back to, you know, Trayvon Martin and, and Michael Brown and many of the things that you've covered, we've heard governors and mayors and other left wing and some legislators saying that racism is a public health emergency. So when they call it a public health emergency, is this medical schools and the AMA responding to that and saying, yeah, it's true. We have to dismantle racism at the, uh, you know, at the medical school level in order to be able to treat it as a disease, that kind of thing. Or did maybe, was it the other way around? Is that maybe where they got, uh, got the language that they were using from the uh, uh, medical schools and the AMA? Well, that's a great, uh, great little historical uh, recollection there, Bob, and I frankly can't tell you which came first. We also had several years ago the concept of toxic racism, which is very much um, what's driving thinking in in um, medical schools now and medical practices, which means that uh, Blacks are not going to get the real help that they need. It is now taboo 
to suggest that racial health disparities, and they do exist, Blacks do have a shorter expected lifespan, it is taboo to suggest that the most essential causes of that may be behavioral issues, whether it's lack of, you know, not, not getting exercise, much higher rates of diabetes. Uh, you talk to inner city cultural, doctors. Cultural in addition to behavioral, right? Right, right. You talk to inner city doctors and they will tell you it is very hard to get their patients to show up for follow-up appointments. Expectant mothers are not following uh, prenatal care instructions. They're not showing up for prenatal care appointments. Uh, you may not talk about those behavioral issues. And you mentioned cultural. Of course, if, if Blacks are being told constantly that the medical profession is racist, uh, they're not going to trust it and they're not going to follow uh, you know, the instructions and they're going to be more uh, you know, inattentive to helpful instructions from their doctor and, and taking their, their medicine and whatnot. So you're not allowed to talk about behavior. You're not allowed to say, well, you know, you're wildly over, overweight. Let's, let's think about getting more exercise and, and working on a diet. That will brand you as a racist. Instead, the only thing you're allowed to say in medical schools now is it's somehow this phantom miasma of, of systemic racism or, or toxic racism. And the public health emergency, you know, we saw that as well with the one of the endless numbers of double standards during the COVID hysteria, where the public health profession, after telling us that we dare not go outside to jog or, or walk or, or play tennis or swim, uh, because that would all kill us being outdoors. Uh, nevertheless, we learned that it was fine to engage in violent protest about the George Floyd death uh, outdoors in highly comp compact spaces because public health uh, measures and emergencies required recognizing systemic racism. So I think this was all kind of co-happening. Uh, co the, the idea that racism is the defining characteristic of America has been dominant in the university systems for decades. And it has worked its way into all of the STEM fields, that is the science, technology, engineering, and medical fields, uh, and, and certainly into medicine. So it's all, it's all this, this weird mindset that has been embraced by every elite institution in America. Yeah, you know, if there's one element uh, of academia you would think that maybe might be exempted from, from racism as being the driving factor, you would think it would be the sciences. But as we are seeing right now play out, science doesn't mean what science once did. And in fact, we can talk a little bit about, you know, the gender studies aspect that is also invading uh, decision making on what, uh, you know, who gets into medical schools and what kind of, uh, what kind of, uh, things that they need to be able to display before they can go out and work in a residency. You spend some time in your article, Heather McDonald, um, talking about the step one test and talking about the comparison uh, between step one scores and um, uh, the MSPE. You talk about uh, a bunch of theoretical reasons why the scores for whites and Asians are so much higher than the scores of, on those tests than blacks and, uh, and Hispanics. 
And the default answer for those in the quote-unquote anti-racist community and those who believe that race is the driving factor of everything is that the tests are flawed, that they're faulty, that they're biased, and so forth. Um, And you write about the case of the University of Pennsylvania professor of medicine, Stanley Goldfarb. Tell us about that. Well, he, uh, yeah, so, so here's the name of the game for everything in our world today, Bob, disparate impact. That is why we're not enforcing the law, because if we do in a colorblind fashion, it will have a disparate impact on blacks, not because the law is racist, but because blacks have much higher rates of offending and criminal offending. And there's not a single objective test of merit, colorblind, standardized, graded by computer. You know, the computer doesn't have no idea who's taking that exam. Uh, Every test of academic knowledge also has a disparate impact on blacks, not because the tests are racist, but because there is a real vast academic skills gap. It shows up early in elementary school, uh, in the eighth grade, about 54% of black eighth graders nationwide uh, don't possess even basic mastery of eighth grade math skills. They're below basic, which, and, and basic is defined as partial mastery. So they're, they don't even have partial mastery of math. 54% of all black eighth graders do not have partial mastery of eighth grade math skills. That continues. It does not close. The SATs, which are the standardized tests that are used uh, to help identify students with college potential to get into undergraduate education. There's huge gaps in SAT scores. And there are also huge gaps in the medical school uh, standardized tests, which are you referred to the MCATs, the yeah. medical college admission test. Uh, the Blacks and Hispanics are admitted to medical schools with MCAT scores and GPAs that are so low that they would be automatically disqualifying if presented by a white or an Asian college senior applying to medical schools. But the schools are so desperate to get black and Hispanic faces in their classrooms that they admit black and Hispanic college seniors with these very, very low scores. Well, not surprisingly, having been admitted into academic environments where they're not competitive with their peers, they, those, those racial preference beneficiaries struggle. Uh, they don't learn as much because the teaching is geared toward the average, not towards them. And they do poorly all along. And they do poorly in something called the step one of the medical licensing exam. Uh, That is a test given at the end of the second year of medical school that tests students' knowledge that they've picked up in their classes of basic biological processes of anatomy, of how cells work, how how cancer works, how disabilities uh, affect the body's functioning, how to read x-rays, a whole host of things. And, and there's a disparity there. And there's also a disparity in uh, a, another test that assesses students' abilities that professors rate them. And 
these tests are used to help determine who gets into the most competitive residencies. And so two things have happened. We've gotten rid of exams, this, uh, excuse me, of grades of the step one uh, medical licensing test because it has a disparate impact. So we've gone to a pass fail system so that we can, can, we can cover up the, uh, the vast academic skills gap. And there was a study done that showed that blacks got worse on this medical professional standards exam that you mentioned, the MPSE. Right, and right. so researchers said, oh, well, the reason must be that their professors are biased in, 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 um, in grading them. Well, a professor emeritus of the Pennsylvania Medical School, Stanley Goldfarb, who is a, a kidney specialist and nephrologist, he tweeted out, well, maybe the reason is, is that the black students are just not testing as well. They don't know as much on, on this exam. And his whole school and indeed his whole profession went into just a complete meltdown and accused him of racism, of being toxic. You know, there was just extraordinarily uh, vituperative language and condescending language used against him. The medical school sent out a tweet to all its members saying, I just want to remind you that Goldfarb is no longer an active faculty member. He's emeritus. So you don't have to feel as, as unsafe in the medical school as you would be if you thought that Goldfarb was still an active faculty member. And this is just a, a one example of right. the of the stigmatization that happens to anybody who speaks the truth about the academic skills gap. Well, this is a, a remarkable thing. I mean, you run the risk. You always do because you take on these very difficult social issues, uh, and and you you come with you know you come with science, you come with statistics, you come with facts, and they don't like that because the facts are going to show what what Stanley Goldfarb, Goldfarb said. Now, what we have to clarify because this is what they're looking for. No one is suggesting that black uh, students are inferior and are literally physically and mentally less capable of achievement than whites. No one is suggesting that. But what we are suggesting is that their performance is much lower, probably more due to what you described, to their cultural upbringing, to their, uh, to their behaviors, and how much of a, of a uh, of, of a priority is placed on education at a very young age in many of the black communities. And then, of course, how many of them carry that up to the undergraduate level and beyond? So it's not a matter of ability or, you know, racial differences. It is simply a matter of who's performing better. And Heather, this is where I have to ask you. Uh, you, you run the risk all the time of being canceled for doing and discussing and writing about the things that you do. I have a feeling they're going to want to really bury this research. They're not going to want to hear it on Tucker. They're not going to want to hear these stats because I can already see it. People walking into a doctor, a facility, a clinic, whatever, hospital, they may see minority doctors there and think to themselves, is this the best of the best? Or is this one of the people who got in because of the color of their skin and diversity in medical schools? Am I really going to trust the diagnosis for my dying wife or for whatever the situation might be to this person? I think I might want to wait and see another physician. That's something I can see happening and is why they're going to want to bury anything that you're talking about right now. Right. You're absolutely right, Bob. And to, to return to your first point, what I'm talking about is averages. We're talking about the average performance across a large population 
Those right. averages tell you nothing about any individual. Uh, you know, there are thousands of blacks who just whoop the ass off of white and Asian students. So you, you can't know, uh, you know, absent other information, if you see any individual in a group, uh, what that individual's capacities are. You can make an, an you know, a, a average judgment, but you, you need far more to be able to know actually what the skills level are, is. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, if you talk to inner city teachers who are basically mum on this issue, they will tell you about the student behaviors in those inner city classrooms, which are diametrically opposed to learning. The truancy rates are much higher. The classroom insubordination is much higher. It's harder to get students to take their textbooks home, to do their homework. Uh, you know, if you compare that to Asian parents that are fanatically monitoring the academic effort made by their, by their children and making sure that they study for exams and that they're doing their homework, that has an, a, a huge effect. And it's what's behind this. Um, and, but, but That's evidenced by the Harvard admission scandal. They, they, they're taking super over highly qualified Asians and, and rejecting their applications because they don't want an entire campus full of Asians and whites. They're sending them away so that they could put in lesser qualified students who really can't handle Harvard level work. And they don't find that out until they drop out and realize, you know, maybe I should have gone to another school where I could have succeeded and advanced toward a career. Yeah, but uh, Asians are discriminated against in virtually every selective college now. And, you know, the black student population at Harvard is 14 percent. If 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 Harvard admitted on a colorblind basis and did not give massive preferences to black applicants, but but held them to the same standard as as white and Asian students uh, that are admitted on a competitive basis. And we're not going to get into the whole alumni legacy issue here. Uh, the Harvard black population would be less than 1%. So that shows you how big the preferences are. Even at Harvard, who has the, Harvard has the pick of the, of the crop. They get the best, best black students in the entire country, but there's even a, a huge skills gap there. As far as the poisonous effect of racial preferences, you're absolutely yeah. right. It is perfectly rational, not racist. When you know that every institution is practicing vast racial preferences in meritocratic jobs, it is rational, not racist, to wonder about the qualifications of any individual in the preferred group. So if you show up at the ER after that near fatal heart attack and a black doctor walks through the door, he may be the best doctor in your entire city, he may be a Ben Carson. It is possible, it is absolutely possible. But given what we know about the racial preference racket and the imperative that every institution is feeling to pass minority, so-called underrepresented minorities along to put them in positions of power, it is absolutely rational to wonder whether what you are seeing is a racial preference beneficiary and not somebody who has succeeded on his merit. And there was a, a Yale law professor, Stephen Carter, uh, who in the 1990s wrote a book called Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby. And he wrote about this stigma. He said, I will never know 
if I am the best for a job or the best black, and there is a difference in many cases between those two categories. And he said that was, that was oppressive to him. And anybody who's honest about racial preferences in those categories should feel the same discomfort. We are talking with Heather McDonald, and we're just about out of time, but I've got to squeeze this, this element in, uh, Heather. Um, Heather, of course, is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow with the Manhattan Institute. She writes for the City Journal as well in this article about uh, the destruction, essentially, of, um, of medicine uh, due to uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity as opposed to merit. The corruption of medicine is extraordinarily dangerous. I have to ask about the LGBTQ movement. You write, there's a... There's a Beginning of one of your paragraphs, uh, according to the AAMC, newly minted doctors must display knowledge of the intersectionality of the patient's multiple identities and how each identity may present varied and multiple forms of oppression or privilege related to clinical decisions and practice. So I'm, I'm reading that and I see the identity I, I, I identify as, et cetera, the massive trans movement, the non-binary uh, movement, and so on and so forth. Are medical schools going to be doing the same thing? Are they, with, with, with respect to the LGBTQ, are they going to be required or are they going to start steering their, their admission decisions to people based on their trans status so that that can become more diverse and equitable as well? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's, there's no victim category that goes unheeded at this point. All victims are sacred. All victims are preferred. And uh, I am, the medical schools are going to face a big, big issue. And I think they already are as to what they're allowed to teach about the biology of sex differences. Uh, the American Pediatric Association has gone big on trans and gender reassignment surgery. Uh, a lot of pediatric hospitals are also taking up the idea that there's nothing, there's no, this is not a social contagion. It's something very real and parents should be, you know, mm-hmm. kept out of the picture. So uh, yeah, this is, this is also going to affect uh, what gets taught and learned in, in medical schools. Yeah. And, and I, and I'll just have to say it. Um, I will be branded a bigot, but I do not care if I walk into a doctor's examination room and we see these pictures, I'm not making this up, but if I see a bearded male wearing a dress or, 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 you know, some sort of female outfit and, and wants to treat me, I'm going to walk out. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm, it makes me uncomfortable. Being a physician is more than just, again, having the knowledge to diagnose and heal or to do research, to find cures for diseases and so on and so forth. It, it is much more. They have to engender confidence. They have to engender trust uh, with a patient. And if medical schools don't pay attention to that, um, I, I think the quality of medicine, and I don't know how it's doing around the world, but the quality of medical care in the United States is going to plummet to a level that we can't even imagine. And it's going to cost people their lives. They will not be treated by people based on these characteristics and these, these incidences. And it's going to lead to a lot of people, I think, not getting medical care at all. Well, Bob, to turn your argument around, though, that that's the argument that is sometimes presented for vast racial preferences in medical school, that Black patients want to see Black doctors. Uh, and so that should trump uh, any objective standards of, of actual medical knowledge. Uh, an, an oncologist uh, in Philadelphia who works in the inner city 
he said one of his female patients once told him, you know, if, if my cancer gets worse, I want to make sure I got me a Jewish, nice, smart Jewish doctor. So, you know, it's a question whether how much value black patients place on seeing a black face with them. I, I would say that uh, it, we, we if everything else was, was equal, there, there would be nothing else, wrong with exactly. that. If everything yeah, else was equal, but it's not. And, right. and again, stressing the racism of the system where it does not exist. Doctors are committed to equal treatment and equal care will only increase the suspicion of blacks. You know, you have Oprah Winfrey now with a big special blaming racism on the higher rates of black COVID deaths. No, excuse me. It is, it is explained virtually exclusively by higher rates of obesity. Um, so, you know, this is a very, very poisonous narrative that is not going to save black lives. It's going to cost them. Yeah, that's very well said. And, you know, it's just so unfortunate. Again, if everything goes out, if standards of admission to medical schools and standards of testing for licensure and so on and so forth were equal across the board, and I knew that every doctor was going to have, have, have you know, passed a, a, at a bare minimum level that is very, very commensurate with others. I, if you want to pick and choose your, your doctor by race, go ahead. I think that's fine. But if the skills are not the same because the standards are not the same, now you're really playing a game with your life. And I fear that's going to hit minorities a lot harder because of what's going on here. Heather McDonald, uh, just such brilliant work. Thank you very much for having the courage to do this research, to write this up and to talk to us about it. Keep, uh, keep that work up. We certainly appreciate what you do. Thank you so much, Bob. And thank you for having me on. It's always an honor. Thank you. Heather McDonald from the Manhattan Institute and City Journal on AM 1420. The answer will be back. We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. 